So I am Jerry Stone, the newest uh, of the talks uh, faculty. To give you a quick rundown, I um, trained at IU, um, did emergency medicine there, finished in 05, so I am old. Um, worked for eight years before going back to do tox fellowship 2013 to 2015. Um, spent some time out at Carolina's Medical Center before um, Aaron called me uh, to come out here. So now I'm here and I've been here since kind of the end of February. So, so rather new. So this talk has a little bit for everyone. So whether you've been a resident for a few weeks and just need that kind of that first, um, first coat of paint, so to speak, kind of an introduction to kind of the basic talks principles, or whether you're a third year, gonna be taking boards before you know it, or even if you were attending for 20 years, this has a little bit for everybody. We're gonna throw in a little board review um, with, with the basics as well, and uh, just kind of cement some of the things that you've probably already learned um, along the way. Um, I look forward to working with a lot of you um, during your second year on the tox rotation. And then if you're as unfortunate as Thomas, you may even be stuck um, in the Banner ED on occasion, um, working with me as I pick up a shift now on occasion there as well. So we'll go ahead and get started. So how many of you all have seen a tox patient in the last month, week, last shift? Like it's pretty ubiquitous, right? And so like this is a very common scenario here where you've got a, a young lady presenting with her friends after you know they found her surrounded by pill bottles with alcohol she's obtunded can't get any history from her and then she just kind of dropped at your front door I mean this is not an uncommon scenario at all right so keep in mind drug overdoses are not killing more people than firearms and motor vehicle collisions and, and you all know this right and a big feat of this of course is the opioid epidemic but if you look at drug deaths from overdose over the last more than decade it's a steady incline and of course a huge part of this heroin and fentanyl analogs and prescription opioids for that matter so there's been a dramatic increase in the amount of deaths because of this opioid epidemic which I know all of you are very familiar with dealing with um, in your department and so forth so it's hard to believe that heroin deaths have went up almost sevenfold just from 2002 to 2015 I mean that's I mean when you look at those lines it just lets you know just how bad a shape we're in when it comes to this epidemic so Today, we're going to cover the basics. We're just going to go over a general approach to the poison patient, as well as just review the clinical toxidromes. And we're, I'm going to, we're going to go over like the classic clinical toxidromes. We're not going to try to make it too fancy or too confusing or anything like that. Just get the basics down, okay? So keep in mind, there's going to be a lot of changes coming to the tox aspect of the, of the ABIM exam. That's going to start in the fall of 2019. So for you all taking the exam, you'll be taking the 2013 um, model of the practice. But they made a lot of changes. And what they're really trying to focus on is what the practicing emergency physician needs to know, which is really kind of more the basics. They, they're on the on the ABM exam, they're not going to be asking you a lot of esoteric type of tox things. It's going to be stuff that they would expect you to know, things that you need to know to manage tox patients in the emergency department. And I think that's a good shift because it's all about that clinical intuition, you being able to make decisions and recognize classic tox things and so forth. And so keep in mind, I mean, it's not trauma, it's not cardiovascular, you know, one of the big, big groups, you know, 10, 9% of the test but it's 5% of the test, and a lot of this is kind of like give me points. And so when you look at everything else up there, like you're a lot better off studying tox for half a day than you are derm, okay? And keep in mind, you know, you have 3%, which is environmental, but some of that might be like marine envenomation or something too. So there's some overlap too between tox and some of these other categories that could also be tied together as well. So, so don't blow it off. So one thing this talk is not about it's not all about the antidotes, but neither is care of the tox patient, right? I mean, most of your patients so that you're tox, you recognize your tox and you're taking care of them outside of like naloxone, which you probably give like all the time, or they at least have got it even pre-hospital all the time. It's not like you're like giving all these antidotes and like pulling these people back from the brinks of death. 
it's doing what you guys do best. It's the ABCs, right? It's like recognizing that somebody's not protecting their airway, recognizing that you need to support their ventilation, recognizing that they're hypotensive or seizing or sick. And it's doing those things. It's not that you have to do something immediately there, or there are some exceptions to that. Like cyanide toxicity would be a good example of that, where like you do kind of probably want to give the danadone as soon as possible, give that patient the best chance um, at a good outcome. But the vast majority of the time, that's not the case. Now, I'm not saying you don't need to know the antidotes at all. I mean, even from a board standpoint, you need to be pretty much familiar with everything that I've got up there, but we just don't have time to go through each of these antidotes today, okay? But being familiar with what antidotes to use for what toxin, it's probably gonna be worth a point or two on the test. For those of you all who will be going out to practice soon, this was an article from the Annals of Emergency Medicine just last month, and it's just kind of like a guideline, really for hospitals, of like what you should be stocking in the ED, in the pharmacy, and like what antidotes need to be readily available. So this is gonna vary by region. So obviously you don't need Anascorp if you're in Maine. Sorry, um, But, you know, so it's gonna kinda of depend on where you're at, what your practice is. But like if I, as I do, practice in Arizona, you know, we, we take care of patients that get transferred here all the time from these smaller critical um, hospitals. They don't even have Crofab. So like, I mean, snakes are everywhere in this. Now we take care of a lot of snake bites and a lot of snake bites that get transferred to us and some of which are delayed many, many hours. So if I was going out to practice somewhere, even if it was a smaller hospital um, and you're seeing snake bites, I'd, you could probably make an argument that y'all should be able to probably have enough Crofab to treat a patient or two. So I know I would want that as an emergency physician. So to prove to me that we don't need to do a whole lot in talking about antidotes and so forth, we've got a simple question here. We've got a kid, got into grandma's glyparide, becomes hypoglycemic. You treat him with dextrose, comes right up. What would be the next line agent that you would give that child to maybe help prevent further hypoglycemic episodes? I heard it. Say it again. Yeah, a triotide, right. Exactly, see, so we can move on from antidotes now. No, we don't know, you, got, you got it all. So, so who is the poison patient? Well, it can be just about anybody, right? I mean, when you, when you think about this, almost any complaint potentially could be the poison patient. And it's something that, so, and sometimes it's obvious, right? Sometimes the patient comes in, they set the bottle down, they're like, I took a whole bottle of that an hour ago. And you're like, great, no mystery here. But like if a person presents an extremis, like they're comatose or they're in respiratory distress and can only speak one or two word sentences, um, or they're you're having ventricular dysrhythmias, it's going to be a little hard maybe to figure out exactly what the cause of their underlying um, pathology is. So the hardest diagnosis to make is what? <coughs> the one you don't think about. So that's why I want you to consider toxin your differential diagnosis, even if it's not super likely. And I'll demonstrate that just here in a moment. And having a generalized approach to these patients will also help in your management of them. So how do these people come in? Just like I said, sometimes it's chronic, sometimes it's acute. Sometimes these patients come in, oh, they're weak and dizzy, everybody's favorite, or they're nauseated and just have a little bit of vomiting, but they don't mention anything that leads you down the road of tox, perhaps. But then other people come in and it's dramatic, right? It's seizures with status, it's cardiac dysrhythmias, it's people in respiratory distress or have CNS and respiratory depression, even coma. So they present a wide variety of ways. And to illustrate this, we just, Rip this right off of Cerner, right off of FirstNet. You've got 40 patients here with a variety of complaints, right? This is done back, I think this was at IU in, um, in the major medical part of it. So ton of different complaints, right? So there's 40 patients here. 22 of them have one of the following symptoms. Syncope, chest pain, stroke-like symptoms, vomiting, just vague all over the place, right? Huge differentials for each one of these complaints. 
And obviously, not 22 patients out of the 40 in the emergency department have carbon monoxide poison, but they could, right? Any one of those patients' symptoms could be consistent with carbon monoxide or be a tox cause from that standpoint. So just, just demonstrating to you all just how broad it really can be. So what clues do we look for when we're looking at the poison patient? I don't need to tell you all this. History is huge. Doing a good physical exam was a good idea. Getting a full set of vital signs also, not too bad. Um, as well as, you know, there's some testing that we tend to get on just about every single tox patient. And we'll review some of that, why we do it and what we're looking for with that as well. So you do, you're going to do your routine history when you can get it. But the more that you can tell us about what they were exposed to or what they took, when they took it, how they took it. Is it you know, transdermal fentanyl? Did they inject something? Did they take something orally? All this has a huge impact on pharmacokinetics and so forth and how a patient might present or whether they're even developed toxicity to begin with in the first place. Obviously, acute versus chronic exposures too can have a huge outcome on the meaning of certain drug levels and so forth, for instance, and salicylates are a great example of that. So the circumstances in which the patient was found, like when were they last seen? Uh, well, we haven't seen mom for three days, or they were seen completely normal two hours ago. Gives you a general idea about what might be going on. And the circumstances as well, were they found with a node? Have they been depressed? Like what was the circumstances of their exposure? Was it intentional? Was it unintentional? Obviously this can make a huge difference. The other thing that's funny to me is, is that, if you ha have you noticed that if people are taking over-the-counter medications, supplements, vitamins, herbals, they don't even count that as a, as a medication. You could be like, oh, I see you take fill in the blank. And the thing to keep in mind is not only do these have drug-drug interactions, but a lot of these things can also be adulterated with things that are actually toxic. So it's good to elicit that part of the history as well. Um, the patients that are super sick, sometimes you can get nothing from them. So you gotta use every single source of a history that you can find. So their family, their friends, what did EMS see on the scene? Did they get pill bottles for you? And even, I've even used in a handful of cases, social media. I mean, especially with adolescents, they like literally will go on Facebook and be like, I'm about to take a bottle of fill in the blank right now. And they'll post it. And so that kind of gives you a timeline. You're like, oh, so about five o'clock, they were saying they were just about to take a whole bottle. I've had that happen at least twice. Or like they, or they tweeted it, gonna die, send. Um, so even that can be useful. And text messaging as well. Like I've had people that found down, but literally their loved one or a friend like got a text from them. Like they're like, what are you, what? I'm going to die. You know, so just keep that in mind. And obviously, like I said, anything that people can get from the scene is extremely helpful. So when it comes to the physical exam, knowing these classic toxidromes that we're going to review today, it can be helpful. But you got to realize that our patients, they tend to not just stick with one drug or toxin. And so you can see it can't kind of muddy the waters from that standpoint. So there are some limitations. And obviously, if I took one of you all and had you take half a bottle of X, and you took a hypertensive diabetic with cardiomyopathy and renal failure and had them take the same amount of medicine, you could see how it might definitely affect you all very differently in how you may present. And just how toxic you become. So a lot of things weigh into that. The other thing to keep in mind, guys, is most, especially pharmaceutical ingestions, they aren't causing direct toxicity. Acetaminophen, you could toss that one out. Obviously, the hepatic failure is huge with that. But a lot of meditations like 
antidepressants, antipsychotics, benzodiazepines, and even opioids. It's not because they have this terrible inherent inorgan toxicity. It's because they cause CNS and respiratory depression. You're found down. You develop rhabdoid compartment syndrome. You, you aspirate or you get an anoxic brain injury. So these are some of the big three that I always get concerned about, especially when a patient's been down. And these cause a ton of morbidity and mortality. Because we can support people through a ton, but especially if they have delay in their care, unfortunately, a lot of the time, this is what does them in. We won't spend a lot of time on the physical exam. A few of the things I want to mention is, you know, treat, treat the physical exam like you would like an oral board case. So, you know, you walk in the room, what do I see, hear, smell, etc. Nurse, can I get a full set of vital signs, including the temp? You know it's a foil if you're in oral boards and then they give you a blood pressure and a heart rate, but you don't get a SAT or you don't get a temp, that's where the money's at. So make sure you always get a full set of vital signs, okay? It's kind of like that in real life, too. If the nurse didn't get a temp, you're like, oh, what do we get a temp? So just make sure you're always checking the temperature. It's extremely important these patients, especially, for example, there's a ton of meth in Arizona. I don't know if y'all got the word yet, but there's a ton of meth in Arizona. And, these, and then these patients, and specifically there was a study out of New York that so guess what? If you're hyperthermic and you've been doing a bunch of blow, um, good chance you're going to die. So if your fever is 106, 107 after you've been on a cocaine binge, that, that is very bad for your outcome. So knowing that as soon as possible and rapidly cooling that patient and doing maximum support of care as soon as possible is important. Uh, these patients don't have enough money to do COVID. <laughs> that's true, Pug's life. That's, that's, that's a very valid point. I'm not judging. I grew up in Missouri. We're like clandestine lab capital of the world. <laughs> So I think everybody's pretty good, you know, looking at pupils, looking for nystagmus and so forth. I tell you all, I've caught a few misses looking at the skin and just exposing patients, especially obtunded people. There's been at least two or three times I've went in to see a patient, I kind of roll and I'm like, huh, skin looks a little red there. Then you get to palpate and the patient starts kind of moaning and you're like, huh, their compartments are rigid, hard as a rock. And I've caught compartment syndrome in a couple times when it got missed in the ED after I was consulted, just because, you know how it is, it's super busy, you're like, it's an overdose, they're super sleepy, I know what to order, and you don't like mash on their buttock or their thigh or their calf. And I've literally, one time I accidentally, I was just like checking for clonus, and the guy was like, ah, ah, and he would like scream every time I would do it. And I'm like, man, that leg's kind of stiff. Oh, that leg's kind of rock hard. Oh, this guy needs ortho. <laughs> so just keep that in mind, because it's, it's an easy miss, especially in people that are altered if you don't look for it good. Uh, you know, other than the surgeons, we actually care a little bit about bowel sounds too, because it can help you decide maybe whether somebody looks more anticholinergic or muscarinic versus a sapathomimetic. And again, do a good job of mashing on people's compartments, especially if they've had any downtime at all. I don't mean to roll nerdy, but the only other people checking reflexes and tone probably is neurology and us. But please don't call and say, I think I got serotonin syndrome and be like, yeah, what's the reflexes like? Reflexes? What's the tone like? Oh, I don't know. Well, then I don't even know how you're guessing that they've got, you know, you don't know that they got clonus or hyperreflexia or rigidity, then I don't know how you're really trying to make that diagnosis. So, and don't forget about the old toxicological handshake. Uh, you know, if you're checking somebody who's wet or dry, I prefer gloves. Some people are naturalists, I guess. <laughs> so again, just going kind of a bread and butter type of tox thing. Patient smells of garlic. Which one of the following toxins should you consider? Which one of these has been classically described? I'm not going to say this is going to be clinically useful. Like somebody's going to roll into Copa and you're going to be like, I smell garlic. It has to be feeling this. <laughs> so I'm not going to say that's going to happen. Do you know which one of these? Or throw some other ones out that you do recognize. What's the classic smell of any of those? So I heard almonds for... Yeah, so... Classically, that's what you're taught. If you see bitter almonds on the exam, go for it. However, I will, I will caution you that most people really don't smell that. Or you could totally fall dead and have never smelled it. So, 
Does anybody know else what anything else looks like or smells like up there? Not looks like. Yeah, rotten eggs, exactly. So organophosphates are actually kind of classically described to kind of smell as smell as garlic in the methyl salicylate, like like wintergreen and so forth. So just keep in mind that could be like one little hint on an exam, for instance. But I wouldn't spend a lot of time memorizing what things smell like um, for my test. So we're going to talk a little bit about um, testing and toxicology as well, um, just kind of covering the basics. So what do you all consider? If somebody says UDS, I will punch you in the face. What are the kind of the ru the routine tox tests? When you think about tox, like on just pretty much any ingestion, what are the basic things that you're going to get? Okay. Okay. Got it. All right. So, BMP, EKG, acetaminophen level. I know I heard that one out there. You know, you're going to get a UPT just like you would anybody with a uterus and a pulse. And obviously, checking a CK is probably reasonable in anybody that was found down. And then obviously, if there are specific drug levels like you know, anticonvulsants would be a, a good level of that. Things that we can get rapidly, like salicylate, acetaminophen, and so forth, you know, depending on what you're seeing clinically. So let's talk a little bit about that. Before we do that, here's a give me point. This is like an in-service give me point or, you know, a real certification exam give me point. How do you calculate an osmolar gap? I know, but I want to know how the calculation from start to finish. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, two times the sodium mm -hmm. plus, um, it's glucose over... 16, 18, 18, 18, 18. Uh, BUN over 2.8 mm -hmm. and alcohol over 4.6. Exactly, exactly right. So one of my colleagues, it took me forever to like, I don't know why you find this helpful, Sarah, but she used to be like two salt shakes and a sugar bun and wash it down with a beer. That's how she remembered <laughs> the salt, the BUN, the sugar, and the alcohol. I just memorized it, but literally guys, I know this was probably on in-service twice, and hypothetically, even though we're not supposed to discuss it, hypothetically, I may have come across this um, in, some, in th something involving ABIN. So, what are we looking for on the EKG? Yeah, okay, right. So, I know y'all are going to do rate, rhythm, axis. I mean, that's what you're always you're looking for certain patterns, but you're also going to want to be looking for the intervals too. You want to you want to look right. You get, you get Pug's life. I know you're all over, it, bro. So you got <laughs> widening of the QRS. You got prolongation of the QT. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because it's kind of huge. And we'll we'll demonstrate that here with a case. We got a six-year-old girl comes in by EMS. She's been intubated after having a seizure and being essentially unresponsive. But unfortunately, they lost the bottle in route. So we don't know exactly what she was exposed to. Some type of pharmaceutical. So you notice when you're looking at her vitals, she is mm, tacky, hypotensive, not responding a whole lot from that standpoint. So you know you get your safety net down. You, I mean, I imagine most of you probably want to line, want to put her up on the monitor, and so you know you're hanging out, you're waiting for mom and dad. Then you look up at the monitor and you see this. Okay, so you're like, hey, maybe we should get a 12 lead. So you get yourself a 12 lead, and this is what you see. So this is a pretty classic EKG. This is an EKG that even if you didn't have the clinical vignette, you should see this EKG. You should see widening of the QRS and R and RS prime and see tachycardia and you should instantly think of a classic toxin, a pharmaceutical. And you should know the treatment of it. You're right, so TCA. So like I can't guarantee this could be on an exam coming to coming soon near you, but like it's definitely one that I would think that'd be worth knowing for sure. And most sodium channel blockers cause the same thing, but I think that would be one most likely that you'd be tested on. So what do you want to treat her with? And you'd be right. Okay, so a couple mil equivalents per kilo. And then just 10 minutes later, it gets a little tacky, starts to widen out again. How about a little bit more bicarb? Looks a little bit better again. 
So I like to use the TCA because they are dirty and filthy. That's kind of a catch-all, right? Like there's almost a receptor that it doesn't hit, right? It does all the stuff that I care about as a toxicologist almost. So it does sodium potassium blockade. It causes seizures through GABA antagonism. You can be hypotensive through alpha blockade. You can see serotonin syndrome and so forth well because of CNS depression. So it just does a ton of different things. And these are the things when I get a polypharmacy overdose, I go through each drug in my mind asking myself, do I expect any cardiac toxicity from this drug? Do I expect CNS depression? Do I expect seizures? Do I expect hypotension? And knowing everything that pharmacologically a TCA does, you can kind of just go through that um, in a checklist in your mind and so forth and kind of trying to anticipate what might happen with that patient. So let me ask you this. So the little girl continues to go flippity-flop. What would you treat her with? Which one of the following medications up there would you treat her with? It's not a trick question, guys, I swear to God. Right, yeah, so just give them benzos. It's not a trick. I did a two-year fellowship to say supportive care and benzodiazepines. <laughs> Come on, guys. So here's the landmark study. We don't have a, well, I guess we have a few, but like you don't see a whole lot of landmark studies with 49 patients in it. This one goes back to the New England Journal of Medicine, 1985 with Lovejoy and Company. They did a really interesting study. So they drew levels on people, and they also got an EKG. It's a lot easier just new EKG, I can tell you that. But what was great about this study was the levels were kind of worthless. People got sick and died with a low level. People maintained asymptomatic because it's, obviously it's going to depend on a lot of things, right? Like when you drew it, when their ingestion was, and what their level peaked at, and all these type of things, right? But the QRS pretty reliably, if you're less than 100 milliseconds, nobody sees, nobody had a cardiac dysrhythmia. And as that went up, about a third of the patients sees when their QRS got wider than 100 milliseconds. And then about 50% of the patients had a ventricular dysrhythmia when their QRS was greater than 160. So obviously, I'll give you a perfect example of how useful the EKG is and why we like lean on it so much. So like somebody comes in there and says, I took my bottle of amitriptyline two hours ago. If they're asymptomatic and have a normal EKG, they're probably lying. Okay, so I mean, if you're six hours out, you can clear a TCA if it's a single substance ingestion. You're six hours in, they have a normal EKG and they're asymptomatic, they're not gonna develop toxicity because if it does, it's gonna happen fast. And usually if they're gonna get sick and die, it's gonna be in the first couple hours. So just keep in mind. So here's another great case. I actually had this when I was probably a couple, maybe a couple years out, three at the max from, from residency. Anything kind of jump out um, on this? Oh, I need my pointer, Christian. I'm just kidding. I can get it. So when you look at this EKG, anything kind of jump out at you? QT prolongation? A touch. Anytime the Q wave is trying to make out with the next P wave, <laughs> it's probably a little long. I'm just saying. So like literally, like I got this one and I was like, okay, yeah, that's pretty long. So what did I tell the nurse to probably get? I'm like, maybe we should give her some mag. Yeah, I'm like, why don't we get some mag? Then I was like, hurry up with the damn mag. <laughs> and then I was like, crapping britches. And I was like, please get the mag. <laughs> Um, and so those are literally taking over like 90 seconds, those three different EKGs. I was just, cause I couldn't do anything else. I was like, oh, I'll just print these EKGs. <laughs> Hopefully she doesn't die. <laughs> so anyway, her outcome was good. So anyway, so just to give you all a visual effect, I'm not going to bore you with phase zero, one, two, and three too much, but just keep in mind, it's the fast-acting sodium channels of zero that cause the QRS widening. It's the, um, the uh, three where you see the sodium, uh, excuse me, potassium efflux blockade causing QT prolongation. So 
So anyway, I started to get concerned when I see a QRS wider than 100 milliseconds. Now this, I'm not talking about bundle branch blocks and so forth, so an old EKG is, is super helpful. I have been tricked once or twice where a person came in after like a big Benadryl overdose or something, I'm like, ooh, they're at 150, start pushing bicarb. And I'm, I'm like on my third ant, and they're like, here's his old EKG, and I'm like, oh damn, you left bundle. So, <laughs> So sometimes it, it will get you, but bicarb is pretty, pretty innocuous from that standpoint. And as the QT starts to get above a 500, I start worrying a little bit more about torsades. There is a long list of medications that are actually sodium channel blockers from that standpoint. Cocaine is like a classical one, TCAs are, local anesthetics and so forth. A lot of these medications have kind of fell to the wayside. The typical antipsychotics that we used to see causing a lot of cardiotoxicity and so forth are, are much less used now. Obviously, um, class 1A antidysrhythmics and even antimalarials, especially of the older generation, could all cause um, sodium channel blockade. It would probably be to be easier to give you all a list of things that didn't prolong the QT than things that do. Keep in mind there are a ton of antipsychotics, antibiotics, antidysrhythmics. This is why stuff's always like popping up on the EMR and it's like, oh, you can't give them Zofran because you gave them Haldol because they were crazy. You're going to kill them. You know, and you get all these warnings all the time in the EMR because of patients on this drug or that drug. But I will tell you just um, yesterday, I saw a young lady who had had, she was status post some months back, cardiac arrest. She was in her 40s. She was taking Sotolol and another physician prescribed her something else that was QT prolongated and she actually had a ventricular arrest was resuscitated, cathed, clean coronaries, so they totally chalked, even she sees follows from the EP guy, but it was totally from a drug-drug interaction, causing her QT prolong, cause her to go into torsades and almost die, so just be aware of it. So, I just mentioned antipsychotics. Most antipsychotics now, the, tip, the atypicals, tend to be like TCA light. In other words, they cause hypotension, they cause seizures, they cause CNS and respiratory depression. I don't mean to poo-poo, people totally die from them, and people do get sick, but it's, typically not as severe as what we used to see with TCAs um, some decades ago. But guess what people with mental health issues take? Uh, they're psych meds. So you'll see a ton of, thank God, mostly SSRIs, which are mostly benign most of the time, a little tachycardia and altered mental status, but you can see Q2 prolongation with that and occasional people will get ill. But most people take their antipsychotics, their antidepressants, and their other mood stabilizers and so forth. So you will see a lot of those over the years. So. The reason that I've spent a lot of time on this is this is actually a study that was done out of New York. They took 200 EKGs that were kind of faxed in to the Poison Center from outlying interpretations of physicians. So they were intensivists, emergency physicians, pediatricians, just everybody sent them all in. Now the good news is in like 78 of the cases, they totally agreed. The EP doctor reviewed it. They're like, totally agree with this doctor. Great. Unfortunately, about 20% of the time, they were like, in 42 of the cases, they were like, oh yeah, and this would totally change the management. And the two things that were missed, QRS widening and QTC prolongation. Those were the two most common things or the discrepancies between the EP reading it and the other physicians and so forth. And I had been guilty of this. Prior to going back to fellowship one time, I thought I was a rock star. I walked in, looked at this girl, I'm like, oh, she's anticholinergic. Oh, yeah, she took da da da. And their family came in and said she took Benadryl. And I was like, mic drop. And, <laughs> and I transferred her down where talked to see her and she me admitted. And then she got down there and I looked at her EKG and her QT was like 585. And I was like, oh. And she did fine, but I was still like, oh, maybe if I hadn't broke my hand patting myself on the back so hard, maybe I would have gave her some mag prior to transferring her. So just make sure you're looking at those intervals. Okay? So could you know this you can see this with, with toxicity. And this is kind of another classic EKG going back to that tox one. If you look at that rhythm strip of two, what do you see? And what drug should this make you think of causing toxicity? Digoxin, absolutely. So this is biventricular, or biventricular, bidirectional ventricular tachycardia. So when you see that, 
you should just you should, for emergency medicine think digs and you can think actinite and some other things for um, for the granotoxins and so forth um, and other sodium channel openers and so forth for from a tox standpoint. But what you all need to do, you see that EKG and you're like, where does it say digoxin as an option? Whoa, where's my digibind? Yeah, just start thinking that, okay? So which one of these following drugs is most likely, they're all antidepressants, which one of these is most likely to cause QRS widening and seizure and overdose? One of those is one of those is definitely nastier than all the rest. It's a little tricky. So it's actually venlafaxine. Venlafaxine is nasty. I mean, it definitely causes cardiac toxicity and so forth. I mean, you can see QT prolongation and stuff like we're searching and so forth, but it's it's rather rare compared to what the cardiac toxicity you'll see with venlafaxine. So what about trazodone? I don't know why they want us to know it. I don't know why it comes up on tests. So what's the classic trazodone thing? Trazodone. Right, trazodone. So. I don't know why, but you got to know it. Trust me. So what are we looking for in the, in the BMP? Of course, you're going to look at somebody's electrolytes like you would with anything. And sometimes it can give you a clue. Maybe they're hyponatremic. Maybe it's from their chronic carbomazepine. Or if they're severely hypokalemic, you know, theophylline can cause acepathomimetics can cause you to be hypokalemic. So could a severe barium overdose and whatnot. That's more for the fellows. But there are some things, there's some clues there you can look at people's electrolyte functions. Renal function is huge, right? Some toxins cause renal dysfunction, a classic one of those would be like the metabolism of ethylene glycol um, causing severe acidosis and leading to renal failure. But the other thing to keep in mind too is that people with renal disease obviously are going to clear some toxins less well than others. So that's an important thing to kind of note because it may change your, your treatment and everything. And obviously acidosis is a huge thing. So when you think about anion gap metabolic acidosis in your differential, you think of Exactly. So every student, everybody attending, everybody should just be able to rattle off some mud piles, right? And I couldn't agree more. So there are like a ton of things, some things I even add in on my own and stuff. You can expand upon it and shrink it in however you want. I even throw a T in for some random reason. But what you got to look at is if you take DKA, AKA, and starvation ketosis and the patient doesn't have renal failure, hell, can it be anything other than a toxin? I mean, like almost every other thing up there is a toxin, right? I mean, when you start looking at that list, the vast majority of things are toxin on this list. So never, never, never admit somebody, somebody's calling me, when, you know, never admit a patient with an unexplained metabolic acidosis. And I'm not talking about the person that's had vomiting and diarrhea that you're gonna give a couple liters to in their bicarbs 20. But I've seen some horrible misses where like people get admitted, they're like, ah, I'm just gonna tuck them in for encephalopathy, and their bicarb was like 12. Hospitalists admit them. And then like six hours later, I had this great case where a guy was found six hours later and his bicarb was like under seven because he'd ingested ethylene glycol. So it was a toxic alcohol that got listed. But when you look back at the hospital submission note and you look back at the emergency physician's note, nobody even gave an effort to like discuss and or hypothesize like, hey, I wonder why the guy's bicarb's well. They were like encephalopathy. Oh yeah, his light paces up a little bit. Oh, maybe he's got some surge criteria. But the guy was totally an ethylene glycol and it got missed. Keep in mind, there are a ton of things. Mud piles is a heck of a lot easier to memorize than like this list. There are a few things on here that I have to remind myself all the time, especially when I'm seeing kids like inborn errors of metabolism and so forth. But there's a huge list of things that cause metabolic acidosis. So just keep in mind, like you can go through your mud piles, you may hit a dead end, but that will get you a long way. But please, you know, this is a good time to call toxicologists or even call the poison center. I mean, I've gotten consults just for, we don't know that there's any history of ingestion. We don't know that there was an exposure at all, but we have an unexplained metabolic acid doses that's not resolving can you come see the patient which I think is a very reasonable thing to do so fireman pulled out of a building unconscious hypotensive essentially unresponsive 
What's he got? And his lactate's 15. Right, he's got cyanide. So the question then is, is what are you treating with? Yeah, so hydroxycobalamin. Why not sodium nitrite? So it's twofold, right? So sodium nitrite can cause hypotension. The guy's already hypotensive and extremely ill. And the other, the other flip coin is, is the guy could probably have carbon monoxide poisoning as well. So you don't want to induce methemoglobinemia to pull the cyanide off, and then the guy have no oxygen carrying or delivery capacity because now he's got methemoglobinemia in combination with carbon monoxide. So the good news is, is with the, the, this coming about, hydroxychloroquine coming about, you don't have to worry about that anymore. In most places you would be working in training and so forth, we'll have that available, I would imagine. So you can see a specific pattern with sapathomimetics too. I mean, classically, if you have a patient that's been like running from the cops, what happens? They come in, their case is a little low, they're a little acidotic, and they're a little hyperglycemic. And so you can see that not uncommonly in, in the lab work as well. So one slide on acetaminophen, because that's a whole different talk in and of itself. So why the heck do we get acetaminophen almost everybody or want one? Well, shocker, your patients sometimes lie to you. <laughs> You're just going to have to believe me. So this is why we get it, because they've looked at this a couple different times. This has been studied multiple times, and the conclusions in their end, there are a small number of patients that either lie or they mistake. I mean, people mix up ibuprofen versus acetaminophen versus naproxen versus, some people just don't know what they took. They just took what was ever in the box. And so a small percentage of those people will have a, a level that will cross the nomogram line. So that's why people get the levels. So that's why anytime just get an acetaminophen level, okay? And it can almost be pretty much people, they don't present with a lot of symptoms, right? It's not like salicylates where you're gonna get acidotic, you're gonna get tinnitus, you're gonna get you know that you know rapid breathing and so forth, tachypnea. You know, you may not see that with acetaminophen. So, and just keep in mind, it's freaking everywhere, right? It's in NyQuil, it's in over-the-counter this, it's in prescription that, so it's a ubiquitous toxin. All right, so I'm gonna bring drug screens up again, and I'm gonna try not to hate on them too much and get on my soapbox and everything, but these weren't really designed to manage patients, like say for instance in the emergency department, right? There's a ton of false positives, and a lot of things cross-react over-the-counter even um, you know prescription drugs as well. And they really can't tell you that's what's going on acutely with the patient. If a dude is trying to rip your head off and he's positive for benzos, who cares? You know he's not toxic from benzos. I mean, he might've took a clonopin three or four days ago, but he sure is not toxic right now from benzos or barbs or anything like that at all. Same thing, unless they've had a head bleed or something, somebody's probably not sleeping soundly with respiratory depression because they did some coke two days ago, which could still turn them positive. So there are some situations where it could be useful, but keep in mind it's been studied and studied again, it's been studied in kids, it's been studied in adults, it really doesn't do much to change what you're doing in the department. A good example where you could use it is like a young person comes in with chest pain and you're like, I don't know, this guy seems like he likes coke to me, and so you, you know, if you, if you it, I mean it might make a difference in your disposition, right? So a young person comes in, they've got chest pain, things are looking okay, but if they do coke, you know, I mean you're a little bit more concerned about, you know, maybe they're dissecting, you know, maybe they're a little bit more at risk of having um, you know, uh, an MI. So just keep that in mind. I'm not saying there's n never useful. This is just to remind you all, look how filthy amphetamines are. Like everything can interact with amphetamine um, from over-the-counter medications to prescription medications, antidepressants, cold remedies. It's a lot of overlap there. Now here's the bad part. Don't call me if you come positive for coke because I can't explain it away. If you, You've been doing the blow if you're positive for coke essentially. There's just no other way to kind of explain it away. So other things I can kind of help you with. If you test a positive for weed, there's a couple things that we can probably do, but it's Arizona, there's marijuana, whatever. 
So again, another study just showing you all, I mean, look how many things can even turn methadone positive falsely. Um, so just keep that in mind. There, there are a lot of false positives. So never go and like berate your patient because I've had a couple cases where you get to looking at somebody's prescription drug list and you're like, oh, I don't think Nana's probably doing, you know, meth. Maybe, you know, maybe it's because she had a cold and she's been taking whatever. So just keep that in mind. Can you all tell me which opioids are reliably detected on, you know, most screens? Heroin. Heroin. Uh, the natural ones. So right, exactly. Right, and if you look at those structurally, they're very similar. So codeine, morphine, heroin. Uh, all the screens are pretty much going to catch those because that's what kind of what they were designed to do. What about the ones that pretty much won't come up on the drug screen? Fentanyl. Fentanyl. <clears throat> it depends, but a lot of, the semi-synthetics, it depends on the screen, but not reliable like the other ones we mentioned that are natural. And if you look at these chemical structures, like the top three, they all look exactly the same. Methadone has its own screen because it doesn't look anything like um, morphine or codeine um, or heroin for that matter. But you know, if you look, say for instance, at methamphetamine and amphetamine versus like bupropion or wellbutrin, you could see it's a pretty similar skeleton. You could see how bupropion could test positive for um, amphetamines or methamphetamine. So it's a pretty ubiquitous drug. I mean, we, we get these, we get these, and they get sick, um, not uncommonly at all. Can you come up with a benzodiazepine that's pretty widely prescribed that wouldn't come positive on a benzodiazepine screen? Oh, tricky, tricky. Good. You're gonna learn something. Clonazepam, so clonopin won't routinely turn positive. Like diazepam will, and things that are um, metabolized oxypam, but clonazepam typically won't. Depends on the screen, lorazepam sometimes will, but it's glucuronidated, doesn't have an active metabolite. So those with the active metabolite, they're usually testing for that metabolite. And so clonazepam typically is not caught on that screen. All right, here's a straightforward question. A couple hours in, 30-year-old girl takes some aspirin, otherwise looks pretty good not exhibiting any signs of toxicity at this point. Level comes back at 24 milligrams per deciliter. What do you do with her? Somebody weigh in. B. B, I like it. I like B. So obviously you would do, you would alkalinate the urine, not acidify it. It's a little early to pull the gun on hemodialysis. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm aggressive. I like hemodialysis, but I think it's a little early for that. I wouldn't put a line in this girl. Then obviously, um, the nomogram is for acetaminophen. All right, this is your opportunity to leave and or throw stuff. Um, any questions up to this point or anything? Comments? Suggestions? Guy? <laughs> it seemed like the perfect time. It did. That's why I put it in there. All right, guys. So what's toxidrome? Toxidrome is just a constellation of signs or symptoms that consistently are produced by certain toxin or toxin or ingestion, okay? So it's just like a little pattern of hints that are kind of, kind of hope you identify maybe what's going on with that patient, okay? But the reality of the thing is, is this. People typically take a polypharmacy ingestion and so forth. So you can often see a mixed toxidrome. We're not going to do that today. I'm not going to try to trip you up. I'm not going to try to make somebody have a speed ball where they come in with their cocaine heroin combination and they, they're CNS depressed and you give them the naloxone and then they're ape shit and then, you know, so we're not going to do anything tricky like that, okay? So first case, we had a seven-year-old, got into some pain pills, pretty drowsy per mom and dad. Vitals look okay, a little hypoxic on room air, and breathing at about eight times a minute, and pupils look like this. 
So what are you all thinking? Yeah, very good, very good. Y'all are sharp, I like it. So yeah, so this is like classic opioid, right? CNS, respiratory depression, as well as pinpoint pupils. It's, it's one that I'm sure all of you all are very familiar with at this point, okay? So my question for you here is, is which of these muscle relaxers, muscle relaxers, could cause a very similar presentation? CNS depression, pinpoint pupils. Oh, I hear, ooh, I hear some back and forth, I like it. Oh, tizanidine. So what's the mechanism of action of tizanidine? All those can cause CNS depression, by the way. All of them. So I'm not trying to be tricky there. So what, how does tizanidine work? Anyone? Yeah, it's an alpha-2 antagonist. So classically, you'll learn about clonidine, even guavacine, and we'll see a few of these every year, too. And, uh, but you can definitely see pinpoint people. They tend not to be as deep from a CNS depression standpoint. You can usually stimulate them and they'll kind of come around and so forth. And most of the patients do pretty well just with supportive care and so forth. So next up, we got a 17-year-old suicide attempt. Was noted to be hallucinating before they went flippity-flop. Um, other, otherwise, unremarkable past medical history. I've thrown in some hints. Throwing in some hints here. If you're colorblind, I apologize. Um, but you'll see that they're tacky, temps up a little bit. Um, decreased bowel sounds, big old fat pupils, um, and they're slightly flushed and dry. So, what is this? This is absolutely, this is, this is anticholinergic or anti-muscarinic if you're a purist, um, and so forth. So clearly this, so big pupils, the whole hot as a hair, dry as a bone, mad as a hatter, you know, the classic little, little fairy tale of things to come. So, and as you can see, this patient had a, a, a good majority of these symptoms. This is not a difficult one to make. I can tell you though, these people, if they're delirious enough, make sure you bladder scan them because uh, once or twice I've, had, I've come to see people and you're like, I'm like, have they peed? And they, because they've been in the department for like a couple hours and they're just, they're out of it. And then you bladder scan them, they got like a liter or something in their bladder. So a lot of the time these people will become a lot less agitated if you take a liter out of their bladder. So feel free to ankle or folate anytime. Classic drugs or classes of drugs that causes are like the anti-medications from that standpoint, classically antihistamines like diphenhydramine, a lot of the antidepressants um, and so forth, uh, a lot of different uh, medications. Um, cyclobenzaprine is a good example of a really potent anticholinergic medication as well. Here's, the, here's one thing I want to stress to you all. Everybody's all about somebody's crazy, somebody's on meth, oh they're anticholinergic. So, they did a small study when I was out at Carolinas. They had, they had multiple patients present with undifferentiated agitated delirium, and they're actually doing a study on the use of dexamethamidine in the undifferentiated patient. And so what was interesting about that study was is that all the patients came in with agitated delirium. Nobody was diagnosed with any other diagnosis, and they were put on dexamethamidine. Every single one of the patients except for one discharged to the hospital with the diagnosis of alcohol withdrawal. None of those patients got adequate amount of benzodiazepines, nor were they recognized as withdrawal. So on people that are big pupils, agitated, shaky, sweaty, I mean, it's easy if you're like, oh, this guy's here four times a week, he drinks all the time. But like, if it's like somebody's 50-year-old mom, maybe they don't know she's got a problem, you know, and she comes in and she looks like she's on something, it could just be withdrawal. So always keep withdrawal in your differential diagnosis as well, please. All right, so a patient presents, they brewed him up a nice tea, and they look a lot like what our patient did from the last case. Which one of the following botanicals would cause this? I know I screwed y'all by using the 
scientific names, didn't I? <laughs> right, you're exactly right though. Right. So it's Jimson weed. Does, does anybody know which one of those? It is A. That's exactly right. Sartatura. Um, you all probably are pretty familiar with oleander, I would imagine, as well, since it's freaking everywhere around the city and so forth, and, and acts much like um, digoxin, it's a sodium potassium um, ATPase inhibitor. And then, of course, C is just uh, tobacco, common tobacco. And Defbachia has calcium oxalate crystals, which usually just causes pain and swelling locally when you chew it, so just keep it out of your mouth. So next case, we've got a three-year-old drinking liquid in the garage. Um, probably shouldn't have been there. And they're super sleepy, sweating up a storm, clearly in respiratory distress. Ooh, garlic on the breath. So kid, ah, pressure's a little soft, tacky, small pupils, just vomiting, diarrhea, and just spit pouring from the mouth. So what's going on here? Right, so this is cholinergic toxidrome. Absolutely. So, and classically, this could be an example of organophosphate or carbamate insecticide poisoning. So, symptoms that support this is just fluid pouring out of everywhere, guys. So, if people are vomiting, diarrhea, bronchorrhea, they got all the rheas, think about cholinergic toxidrome, okay? And so, one of the classic mnemonic is sludge. People tend to like sludge, which is, which is fine. Another classic one that people uh, like to use is uh, you know, dumbbells with the killer bees because these people die from bronchospasm, bronchosecretions, um, and bradycardia. That's what really kind of does these people in. They'll try to trip you up on this. So you'll probably use, what do we use to treat these patients? Like if that kid comes in, what do you start slamming that kid with? Atropine, and atropine is really like what's going to help them up front. So you just start slamming in the atropine, and you may use mm, grams. Like I mean, you literally will probably use like a tray if the person's really, really, really sick. So that's something to keep in mind from that standpoint. And you do that till you dry them up. If they get a little tacky, that's fine. If they're still drowning and drooling and vomiting, then you keep pushing the atropine. Okay? How quick do you do that? Like. Push it, wait two minutes, push it, wait two minutes. Yeah, but you, I mean, you'll, I mean, you'll be just giving them more. I mean, you may be like doubling it in that time too. So you may, maybe like for an adult, you might give them two, four. I mean, you may just, you ratchet it up pretty quickly if the patient's really symptomatic. So, I mean, if you started at even like two milligrams, they're still, if they're just still sick as a dog, four, eight. I mean, you just keep doubling it. And there's, there's some really good studies, you know, if you want to review that sometime, it just like what works best as far as like, they, I mean, they do infusions, they do a number of different things. Keep in mind too, this is new since vaping kind of came out, these highly concentrated nicotine, liquid nicotines. So keep in mind that a milligram per kilo can be fatal, even in an adult. Um, when it comes to nicotine. So this can look a lot like cholinergic syndromes too. So like you get a sick kid, you're like, they kind of initially look pathomimetic. I mean, they can get even, um, eventually become bradycardic and actually get uh, respiratory um, and skeletal muscle paralysis from a large enough nicotine dose. And keep in mind, you're talking like milligrams per ml. So like a kid, like a few drops could kill a kid. Um, so just keep that in mind because the toxicity has been well reported from that standpoint. We had a 16 year old, took a handful of pills, Vomited a few times at home, went flippy-flop, and when they arrive in the ED, a little altered, definitely shaky um, and anxious. You can hear them cussing up a storm very clearly as you walk into the room, and you notice big pupils, they're sweaty, hyperactive bowel sounds, and when you look at their labs, they've got the classic hypokalemia, a little acidotic, as well as hyperglycemic. And then you look at their skin, they're just like soaking. So what's going on with these folks? Yeah, it's a pathomimetic. Not, not trying to be tricky, not trying to be tricky here. 
So again, kind of all the things that lead you to think that, the tachycardia, agitation, madriasis, hyperactive bowel sounds, even that, that hyperthermia as, that we mentioned before, which is, which is very, very important. Um, from that standpoint. There are a wide variety of uh, pharmaceuticals as well as drugs of abuse that patients can present with with this. Theophylline's more kind of historical anymore. You just don't see a lot of people prescribe Theophylline anymore. It's still probably worth knowing um, for EM board just because it's like a classic horrible seize till you die type of drug. Um, so it's worth noting. And then kind of newer to the scene, bath salts in the last many years and synthetic cannabinoids, which you know we still do see on occasion. Um, and obviously those people can be pretty crazy too. I throw this up here just to remind everyone that if you do coke, you're doing levambasol. And there's a couple really interesting things that you see with that. Levambasol number one, you can see this wicked cool vasculitis where people just like, their ears turn purple, their face turn purple, they can get huge amounts of this vasculitis. And if you don't have a history of cocaine use, it can be pretty tricky. And I can't tell you how many people that we've taken care of that have absolutely been, if they're positive for coke, they're positive for levambasol on our, on our broad screen. It's really kind of funny. The other thing you gotta keep in mind too is that people that are chronic cocaine abusers, keep in mind they could have a very, very, very low ANC. So you can see some pretty profound neutropenias and so forth. So that obviously would put people at risk of serious infection, infectious etiologies too. So if you get a patient that comes in and they appear ill or toxic or anything, they got a history of cocaine use, it's definitely worth, I mean, you're gonna get a CBC anyway, but definitely something to, to note. You know, if you have a patient, you're like, wow, you know, they've got an ANC count of like four or 500, you know, a total white count of like one, it could, it could be due to their cocaine abuse. I'm just throwing it out there. So. Which one of these following pharmaceuticals should you avoid with acute co cocaine intoxication? B. B, so it's the beta blocker, right? And so this is classic Todd, it's kind of dogma. I'm not talking about somebody who used coke and they're like sitting in a room like how we are right now, okay? You're talking about the person that's acutely agitated and so forth. And every once in a rare while, somebody will just like want to treat somebody's heart rate. I just want to bring their heart rate down. If you want to bring their heart rate down, give them benzodiazepines, okay? Don't give them beta blockers because if they're acutely intoxicated, of course, you may get unopposed alpha, blah, blah, blah. That actually happened. So I've never given a beta blocker to anybody that I thought was acutely cocaine toxic. I can tell you if, it's, if they're not acutely like symptomatic at that point, I don't think it matters two days out. So somebody's gonna have a positive cocaine screen. Because you, you have to imagine it. People come in, they got a history of cocaine. Maybe nobody screens them for it, nobody talks about it. And they get admitted because their tropes up or whatever, they get admitted. And they're gonna get started on beta blocker after they're, you know, they're um, in STEMI and so forth. So you know that probably happens, it just kind of depends on the timing. But it's interesting to kind of look at the literature on that. And I don't have time to discuss it all today, but they gave like a little old woman on the cath lab like coke, like right into her coronaries and it will cause spasm. <laughs> look it up, it's science. <laughs> so anyway, differentiating sapathomimetic from anticholinergic, it's all about wet and dry, guys. So on an exam, they're gonna have to give you the skin exam. Their pupils are gonna be big, be big. They're gonna be, you know, agitated. They're gonna have altered, you know, mental status and everything, so it's really wet versus dry, okay? Or they may give you the agent, which you should be able to kind of discern which is which. So, you know, we covered anticholinergic, cholinergic, adrenergic, or sapathomimetic, and opioid. Um, I didn't feel like we had enough time to go into all the other things. As far as, you know, I stressed, you know, being aware of withdrawal syndromes and being aggressive about treating those withdrawal syndromes and so forth. Serotonin syndrome and NMS, you know, those really aren't that tricky, guys. If they have hyperreflexia, worse new lower extremities, and they've got clonus, and it came on pretty rapidly, and they're on a serotonergic agent, 
probably serotonin syndrome. If they are rigid and got an antipsychotic a day or two ago and it kind of slowly came on, then it's probably NMS. Okay, classically you don't have much reflexes with NMS because you get so rigid, but severe serotonin syndrome can look similar, but you'll have clonus. And I don't know if you all have ever seen like legit serotonin syndrome like type of clonus, but I've literally just held people's feet up and they will beat till you let go. And I've picked people up off of like a, to transfer them to the cot and they're like a board. I mean, like you just lift them like nothing flexes or bends or anything. They can be that rigid, so it's pretty impressive. So, work. What the hell happened to this guy? Which one of these administered to him could cause this presentation? Or what do you all even think is going on with him? Yeah, so this guy's got dystonia. So what would you give him? How would you help him? Yeah, just give the guy some bit of drug. Not anticholinergic medication. Balance things out and so forth. Um, Absolutely. Keep in mind, uh, tramadol as well as sumatriptan both have uh, serotonergic effects, and I think people kind of, you know, tramadol also. It's on my dirty, filthy list because, you know, it causes seizures even at therapeutic doses. It has it has a lot of drug inter drug drug interactions, especially with serotonergic patients. We are not going to spend a lot of time on decon. I just didn't feel like I had enough time to go through it all. Um, but what I'll mention is this: we're not making people throw up anymore, guys. So. There shouldn't be anybody getting Ipecac, okay? It can kind of disguise things. So obviously, like say for instance, a classical would be like mushrooms. Like we totally care like when they start vomiting. If they're vomiting after six hours, I'm more worried. If they vomit before, you know, like within a couple hours, I'm not as worried. And, uh, you can apply that blanket wise, but for the most part, and for testing purposes, you definitely worry more about it. So if somebody rolls in, you're like, oh, I ate some mushrooms, and then you give them Ipecac, and they start vomiting, right? If you get the Ipecac, you've kind of been like, well, I don't know, were they gonna get sick? I, I don't know when they were really gonna throw up because of the toxin, because now I'm making them vomit. Another example of that is a lot of medications will cause their own, you know, gastric emptying, you know, if they take enough of it, caffeine will do that, lithium will do that, iron will do that. There's a lot of medications that will cause you to throw up. You don't need additional help throwing up. Um, gastric lavage, I've never done it. I've never done it. I've seen it maybe done twice, and this is going back from the time I was in medical school in 98, all the way, fast forward, oh damn, I am old. Um, but it's very, very, very rarely used, if ever anymore. Because, I mean, you can perforate somebody's esophagus, they can aspirate, nobody should be getting this done without an airway in place, and it really should be done, I mean, if you read like the guidelines for it, they want people that are experienced with it. And that's essentially like nobody anymore. It's horribly unpleasant. You, like I said, you can perforate somebody's esophagus, they can aspirate, there's a lot of things that could go south with gastric lavage, and no GID contamination has ever been shown to, to, to help outcomes at all. So really activated charcoal is gonna be your, your, your biggest go-to from that standpoint. So again, most things that people get into are self-limited anyway. You don't need to GID con them, okay? Um, because most of those are secondary effects anyway down the line, like I talked about, aspiration, rhabdo, anoxic brain injury, and so forth. And again, there's never been a study that showed GID contamination had an outcome benefit um, for patients from that standpoint. So whole bile irrigation, it's considered for things. I think I've done it once or twice. If somebody takes a bunch of lithium or a metal like iron, um, for instance, or they take a really uh, sustained release or enteric coated product where you think it's like really gonna be sitting in their gut, they're gonna be absorbing it for like over days, potentially, but again, it's never been shown to improve outcomes from that standpoint. So which of the following, this, this would be like a classic board question, which one of these, would actually potentially benefit if given within an hour. You'll, you'll hear that a lot about activated charcoal. 
if the patient presents prior to an hour, it's probably worth, and they're wide awake. You obviously don't want to give somebody charcoal for them to aspirate. So you don't want to be like, here, open your mouth, and you know, get the charcoal down like that, okay? I don't advise that at all. They need to be awake, alert, cooperative um, to take in the charcoal. So which one of these would you expect to, to actually maybe decrease their area under the curve or decrease maybe their peak concentration? Aspirin, absolutely right. So why not any of the other ones, right? They're like on the classic list of like crap that won't benefit from charcoal. Um, so, you know, the heavy metals, solvents, caustics. I mean, if somebody drinks a caustic, you don't want to be like, I know you need a scope, but here, drink this stuff that's going to block everything from the GI specialist being able to see. So those are all like classic examples. You know, alcohols are not absorbed really well with activated charcoal. So like ethylene glycol, methanol, it's not going to be helpful. So don't do that. We're almost done. Hang in there. I'm almost on time. So bonus round. Patients on linazolid for URI. I mean, not for you, for their MRSA, but they've got a little bit of, you know, little stuffy nose and so forth. They want to know what they can take for their symptoms, a little cough, cold, congestion type of thing. Which one of the following do they need to avoid and why? Somebody impress me. This, this, this is not an easy question. This is not something I would expect necessarily to see on EM boards. It'd be more like a tox board thing, but I had to keep Eric awake. So the answer on this is actually D. It's, it's pseudoephedrine, and the reason why is a linazolid has MAOI activity. So it would be, you know, you get that cholinergic crisis, and so cholinergic crisis, excuse me, catecholamine type of crisis, just like you would with tyramine right, and so forth. Actually, it's a warming up. Great. When you give linazolid, because almost everybody's on some kind of... Right, a serotonergic agent or something else that could cause like a tyramine thing, yeah. Don't take them out for wine and cheese, is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> So, again, the, I mean, the key takeaways is keep in mind any patient presenting to the ED, tox can be in your differential diagnosis because it probably should be there. Get the best history and the best physical that you can on every patient. You all know this. Knowing those classic toxidromes will help you from a testing standpoint, and they can help you narrow your differential diagnosis as well when you're working clinically in the department. Pretty much everybody needs a BMP and acetaminophen um, and an EKG from that standpoint. Uh, when in the ED. And keep in mind, guys, doing what you all do best, which is resuscitating patients, managing the ABCs and so forth, is the vast majority of what these people are going to need. Okay? You need to know the antidotes that I threw up there earlier, especially like for your exam. Um, but otherwise, you know, these patients are going to have good outcomes because you're going to do a good job of taking care of them. I got any questions? All right. People don't come like, right, yeah. I know Ashley and Levi.